On December 15th, Washington Post fashion critic Robin Gavon sat down with designer and fashion icon Dion von Furstenberg as part of the ongoing live interview series in New Line. In the interview, von Furstenberg discusses how her career has evolved over the past four decades, including the trends that have upended the fashion industry, the intersection of fashion, politics, and culture, and much more. Let's listen. That's a nice welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. We almost didn't get here. Well, we are very happy to I have am you too. here. I'm very happy to be at the Washington Post because right now it's the best poet paper in the world. So, And we did not pay her to say that. And I have your app, and, <laughs> and, and it's a great app, and I stand by you all the way. Thank you. Well, let me just start by, again, thanking you all for being here and for also uh, thanking those of, uh, of you who are watching online. I am Robin Gibbon, and I'm the fashion critic for The Washington Post. Thank you. And of course, this is the great Diane von Furstenberg. And she isn't just part of the, con the cultural conversation, she has helped to drive it. Her iconic wrap dress appeared on the cover of Newsweek in 1976. She's built a fashion business that speaks to fashion aficionados and the casual observer. It speaks to women. She's also the president of the Council of Fashion Designers of America. She's worked to empower women through the DBF Award and Vital Voices. And she is also an avid and, and um, outspoken uh, advocate for women in the workplace. So I'd like you to um, please, if you have questions, to go to Twitter and you can pose them with the hashtag newline and I'll try to get some of those questions in. But in the meantime, I'd like to start uh, at the beginning. No, right? And uh, <laughs> we have a long way to go. <laughs> uh, you were a child of the 50s, really, growing up. And I know that you talk uh, in your memoir, you start with um, the story of your mother. And I'm intrigued because on the one hand, you know, so we think of the 50s um, as this time when uh, women had a particular place that they were supposed to occupy. But when you describe the gifts that your mother gave you, you mentioned independence, freedom, and self-reliance. Can you just sort of tell us a bit about your mother and why? Well, first of all, what, what is different is the 50s in the US were not the same as the 50s in Europe. 50s in, Europe, in, in the US, from what I remember from movies, was the television and the refrigerator and, and the perfect <laughs> little house. and. And you know, and the uh, and the station wagon, and um, in Europe it was after the war, and uh, and in my case, in my family, uh, my mother had suffered from the war because uh, at the age of 22, she was arrested because she was part of the resistance, and she was deported into, uh, she went to Auschwitz. And uh, so she went to, you know, to concentration camp. And she stayed there for 13 months. Uh, 
but she survived. She survived and uh, barely survived because she weighed 49 pounds when she was, uh, yeah, so there was really just barely her bones. But she survived. And you know, the funny thing, is, I mean, it's not funny, but I found the, the when, so she, 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 one day the Germans were no longer there, and then the Russians came, and that wasn't much more fun either, and then the Americans came. And then she was in the hospital, and, and in the hospital they had to fill, I guess, a, a thing, and they said name, and, and they said, what state of health? And she wrote, excellent health. She was 49 pounds. Wow. So I, when I saw that, I, that's explained who my mother was. Excellent health. No matter what, we're never a victim, you know? So anyway, she came back to Belgium, and her mother fed her little by little. She always said that she felt like it was a, you know, like a balloon, little by little, she became. And then my, my, her fiancé, who was in Switzerland, came back. They met again. They got married, and the doctor said to my father, to who then my father, um, she cannot have a child. You have to wait at least five years because she won't make it, and the child won't be normal. Well, nine months later, I was born, and I was not, <laughs> and I was not normal. <laughs> you were extraordinary. Whatever. <laughs> you said it. Anyway, so my mother. The one thing that my mother, I mean, you know, when I wrote the memoir, I really wanted to write about my mother's story. And writing about my mother's story, it so explains the person that I am. And it's really after your mother dies that you can actually, you know, because my mother was so strong that, and she always gave advice to everybody which annoyed me, but when she's no longer there, course, now I'm giving advice to everyone. Well, she, I love the story that you tell about how you were afraid of the dark. And instead of yes, her so sort of coddling you, she locked me in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, today you would get arrested. <laughs> she was but, not a helicopter parent. That's right. <laughs> but if you put your, if you get, you know, closed in the closet, first of all, after a few minutes, you are no, you, it's no longer dark, but there's always a piece of light somewhere. And then also you realize why well, I'm afraid of the dark. It makes no sense. So I am so glad that I had the mother that I was because she made me, she told me fear is not an option. If I was afraid of anything, why? Why are you afraid? Making, being afraid makes it worse. And, and so actually she did make me fearless. And some of it seems to really come through as, as you got older and in your teens and, and your 20s and, um, you know, you're off, um, you know, it, at the University of Geneva and it's the 60s and it's this period of experimentation and, and freedom and boyfriends. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I was very lucky because I was young, somewhere in between the discovery of pills and the beginning of AIDS. <laughs> you figure it out. And, and that's all we'll say about that. <laughs> but you did meet um, your first husband. I, yes, I, I met my, char my prince, my prince charmant. 
He was a... Quite literally a prince. He was a prince. He was an Austro-Italian. Uh, and uh, he was, we were both 18 when we met. We met at university. And, um, and uh, we stayed together for a few years. Then he came to America. Well, then we kind of split. I went to Paris. He went to America. And then we met again. And then we had the children. And so much of so much of the the Diet von Christenberg that I think people have in their imagination seems to sort of happen in the seventies. And when you come to New York and you are part of sort of the beautiful people of New York. And one of the things that I remember is the description of the wedding present from your mother in law, which was a beach house near Sardinia. We <laughs> should all be so lucky. <laughs> um, I mean what does it mean to be a jet setter? Like, what did that teach well, you okay, about Well, okay, so first of all, let's think. I was not born that night. I mean, I was born uh, from a, a father who was basically escaped from Russia, uh, from a, a, a mother who had been in Auschwitz. But I grew up very, in a very nice way. My father had money. We were very well. I mean, everything was fine. But I didn't really know what you call the jet set. Okay. Uh, I, my mother, though, she put me in boarding school in Switzerland when I was 14. She wanted me to live a big life. And, uh, and I did live a big life. And, uh, and it happened gradually. You know, you go to school in Switzerland, and you meet a lot of people, blah, 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 this and that. Then I met Egon at university. And, uh, and he was very much part of that world. And, was and that I, intimidating at first? It was intimidating at first. I remember but the, my first real contact with the jet set was I was in Stad, and first I was with my mother, and my mother had a second husband. And I was with them, very nice little girl, with my brother. And then in the village of Kstad, I met one of the girls, my Venezuelan friend that I had been at boarding school with. And she said, oh, blah, 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 come and stay. So my mother went back to Geneva, and I stayed with them. And that night, I remember, I went to a party. And oh, I'd never seen anything like that. People were dancing and smoking and drinking, and people were speaking four languages at the same time, and everyone knew each other. And I thought, oh my god, how do it was kind of a revelation. And then I went more and more, and then um, now I'm an old lady and I know everybody. <laughs> I and, learned very well. And, you, well. and then, but the point is that, so what I think is important is that when I was growing up, I did not really know what I wanted to do, but I knew the kind of woman that I wanted to be, which was I wanted to be a woman who was independent, who could pay her own bills, who was not depending on her father or husband. That was the most important. So I knew, because I was writing at the time, I was writing fiction, I always wrote like, I was always the, the mistress, never the wife, you know? I mean, my character. <laughs> and, uh, and so I knew that the kind of woman in charge I wanted to be. And uh, 
And so first I worked in Paris, and, um, and, uh, and, and that was my first encounter with fashion. I, I worked for a photographer's agent. Mm -hmm. And as a photographer's agent assistant, I discovered this incredible world of fashion, which is the world of image and models and photographers and stylists and, and all of these things that I had no idea that you know, for, for the world of fashion starts from fabric and then fabric and dyeing and all of these things and then the image and all of that. So that was my first crash course and it was 1968 and there were all the demonstration in Paris, you know. And so after that, I met through Egon. Well, we should say that. I mean, the demonstrations, I mean, they were massive. Yes. I mean, May, they practically May shut down the city. 1968 was the revolution. But it was a really revolution of young people, and there were bombs in the streets and everything. Did I really do the revolution? No, but like coming out of regime, I would see a little bit. And, you know, <laughs> that was my revolution. But anyway, <laughs> but I, but um, but then I went. Uh, I met an Italian manufacturer, an industrial of fashion, and he said, you know, come and work in Italy and see. What, what we do, how we make fashion. I, I mean, the truth is he had a crush on me and I think he just <laughs> wanted me there. But anyway, I went and so, and this man had a printing factory, right? Mm -hmm. Which means that he printed for scarves. He used to do scarves for Gucci, Ferragamo and people like that. And, was, and he worked in silks in Jersey. Yes, in silk, silk. silk. And um, so I learned everything about printing, you know, the different, uh, uh, the different, how you buy an artwork, how you put it in repeat, how you build a color palette with a different type of printing and discharge and everything. And in Italy, you know, when you work in factories in Italy, if you work with a colorist, a worker, his father was a colorist, his grandfather was a colorist. So it's, it's really craft. And in, so I really, at the time, didn't think I was learning anything. But I really was learning a lot, now I know. So he had this Were factory. Were you thinking that you wanted to do some no, work not, in No, no, I'm getting there. Let me just... Well, <laughs> Because, I mean, I've had a long life and we only have a few minutes. <laughs> but I want to tell you because of how it, how it started. So the printing factory was one thing. Then he thought, the man thought he needed more space. So he bought the factory next door, right? In the factory next door, they were making, the reason they, went, they were selling the, country, the factory is because they were, set, they were making stockings, right? Stockings, mm -hmm. nylon stockings. Well, nylon stockings were dead because they had invented pantyhose, right? So this guy who had the factory of the stockings sold the factory to Ferretti. So he bought this factory, but there were all these machines there. And he said, why should I throw out these machines? Is there anything else I could do with these machines? They were knitting machines, but very, very thin, you know, knit for the nylon stockings. And so he called yarn manufacturers, people like Dupont that make yarns, threads. And they said, let's try to use these machines and, 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 and do with thicker yarn. And that was how he discovered Jersey. So, 
So here I am, I just happened to be there, I learned everything about printing, and now all of a sudden I learned everything about making jersey. And, ma and mixing, and then he used to tell me, you know, you put a little bit of cotton and a little bit of this and yarn, and you mix the yarn, and it's like making the spaghetti sauce. The more you mix <laughs> things, the better it is. And so I learned all of this also by accident, because I happened to be there. And then he started to make T-shirts. Now, T-shirts now, to all of you, seems normal. At the time, women did not wear T-shirts. T-shirts were men's underwear, <laughs> and mostly sailors, and except, except until Brigitte Bardot in, in Saint-Tropez. We this? are now 1969, 68. Uh, and Brigitte Bardot, there was a little shop in Saint-Tropez who would make colored T-shirts. You could get them in red and in blue and in green, and in here it was written Saint-Tropez shows the name of the shop. And that became like the big thing. So this man who was making jersey had the idea of taking t-shirts, making t-shirts for women and printing them. Okay, so t-shirt and printing. Then he felt like he needed a factory to make those t-shirts that had very thin needles because this was a whole different thing. So he found a factory where they used to make nightgowns. Also not a business, it was going down. Because they were the 60s, you wear nothing, right? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so printing, jersey, thin needles, that, that, that's while I was there. Then my boyfriend, who was no longer my boyfriend, Aegon, came to Oh, no, 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 he was my boyfriend again. Yeah. And, and he came to Rome, and we met in Rome for a few days for the weekend. And he was on his way to go to India, you know, because he, he was not? off from his uh, internship. And before he went back to the bank, he went to India and whatever. And so I came to visit him. And he said, oh, tomorrow, tonight we have a big party and blah, blah, blah. It turned out that the party, he gave me a ring, and it was like an engagement, an engagement thing. And was that a good thing? Yeah, it was a good thing, but I didn't really believe him. <laughs> I mean, I took the ring, and it was all of that, but I, I didn't really think that, you know, I was gonna, I, it was okay. We had fun. <laughs> and so, and then I went to India, and I went back to the factory, right? Well, the man who was, who, the man Ferretti who had these okay. factories had a yellow Maserati. And he used to, we used to go from factories to factories in the yellow Maserati. And he was driving like an Italian. <laughs> and so I arrive in Milan one day and I'm feeling really nauseous. And I can, I say, oh my God, I'm feeling so nauseous. And I thought it was the Maserati. But it wasn't the Maserati, I was pregnant. So here I am, so much wanting to be independent, so much wanting to do this, and I'm pregnant. And I've, I said, how everybody in the world is going to think that I did it on purpose. Because, you know, my was boyfriend was like this, the idea, the perfect catch. 
So I was really upset. I said, no, it's not possible. I was really upset. So I went to Geneva to see my mother and to see a doctor. And, and my mother said, well, you know, I mean, you are engaged, so you have to let him know. So I it took me hours and hours to write this telegram to explain to him what had happened. And then I got a telegram back, and he said, we're getting married in July 15. Arrange everything in Paris. <laughs> And at first, I was really upset. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, you're crazy. And by the time my mother came back home, I was no longer upset. I was really happy. And, um, and nine months later, I mean, I got married. And then uh, six months later, after I got married, I had my son, who is in the room today. <laughs> and, and my son, who just got told yesterday that his daughter has been accepted to Georgetown. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious. It's, I mean, it's the 70s. You were sort of off on what was looking like no, a No, no, but wait, what, one more thing. The, what well, you forgot, what is more important, because yeah. we, I mean, not more important, but equally as important since we're talking about how I got into fashion, is I, when I discovered I was pregnant and I was going to get married, I went to Ferreri. I said, listen, I'm pregnant, I'm getting married, and I'm moving to America. But I really, really want to work. So it's very important that you help me. And I had already started. That was my question. Yes, because I had visited Aegon. I forgot to say that six months before I had come to America. My mother gave me for my birthday a ticket to New York to visit Aegon. And so I went to visit Aegon in January. And I stayed in New York for six weeks. And I discovered America, and I discovered New York. And because Aegon was, you know, man, man, you know, like an it boy, and I was his girlfriend, all the young designers wanted to dress me. And that's how I went in the back room of Holston and, and Stephen Burroughs and um, Giorgio Santangelo. And when I went, and I, I loved it, and I said, I have to come back. I have to find a way that I can come back to America. Then I went back to the factory. And at that time, when I saw these factories, after my experience in New York, I said, ooh, I saw an opportunity for me to use this factory and to make little, you know, little, to make clothes that I could sell in America. So hidden without even telling him, I was like working with a pattern maker and pulling fabrics that they weren't using, and that's how I made my first dresses. Do you, do you think you could have done that in Europe? No. Did it need to be, no. needed to be a man? No, but also because the market. And so when, when I found out I was pregnant, I said to Ferretti, listen, please allow me to make a sample line and I will try to sell it in America. And he was great. He said yes, and he believed in me, and he was there the day of my wedding, and you say, you'll see, you'll make it. I mean, he, were, he and Aegon were the two people who really, really believed in me and who really wanted me to do this. And so I came to America, and when I came to America, I did not fly, Aegon came by plane, and I wanted to come by boat because I wanted to really take time to think about my future and to plan it all. Of course, I was so nauseous that I didn't have time to talk about my future. But I came to New York like you're supposed to arrive in New York. I arrived, and I saw the Statue of Liberty.
energy on the morning, and Aegon picked me up with a beautiful car, and I had big trunks, and in my <laughs> trunks I had my dresses, and I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, I had no clue, and, but it was, so it was 1970, and I had my son, and then immediately after my daughter, because actually I had two children in 13 months. And at the same time, I was making the first dresses back and forth to the factory. And then, and then Diana Vreeland really got behind me. She said, I want to- Diana Vreeland was the- Diana Vreeland was the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. And if you think that Anna Winter was intimidating, <laughs> let me tell you, Diana Vreeland was more intimidating. And I arrived in this, in this office and everything was red and, all of, and, and, and beautiful jewelry and clothes hanging and all of that. And I walk in and then walk, she walks in with a long, long, long um, how do you say, cigarette holder. And then she looked at me and the first thing she did is she pulled my chin up and she said, chin up, up, up. I thought, oh, it's not starting well. Anyway, <laughs> and she had two models. She made the models come in, and she, they tried my poor little dresses, you know. And had you brought her a wrap dress, or were these? Well, it wasn't wrapped yet. It was a t-shirt dress and little t-shirt, no t-shirt dress and shirt dress, but printed, very much the same, printed shirt. And um, and I, she started to see, and she, I mean, I had shown it before, and people looked at it. And people didn't really understand what it was. She said, this is genius. This is great. Because I mean, they were very inexpensive, sweet little dresses, you know. I thought for me, they were la petite robe, kind of bourgeois little dresses. Um, and um, anyway, so, and then from that moment on, so that was 72. I mean, and, but by 1976, I was making 25,000 dresses a week, which is 50,000 sleeves. And, <laughs> and um, I came to Washington to the White House for the first time, and I was on the cover of Newsweek, and it was very exciting. And one of the, the tagline for that wrap dress was, be, feel like a woman. Oh, wear, the first time I took a, a I, the first time I, I after the Diana Vreeland, she loved it, loved it, loved it, and pushed me out the door. And so I'm packing up, and I, her assistant said, you know, she liked it, so she'll help you. I said, but what do I do now? She said, well, you know, Keisha, Keisha Keeble, you mm -hmm. remember? Uh, she said. Um, she was a fashion editor at Yes, she was. A, well, at the time, she was Diana Vreeland's assistant. She said, you know what you should do is you should take a suite in a hotel, a room in the hotel. I said, what hotel? She said, well, maybe the Gotham Hotel, because that's where California um, manufacturers show their lines, so you will have traffic. Very good advice. I said, and how will people know about it? She said, you should list yourself in something called a fashion calendar. Very good advice. And then you should take a little ad in Women's Wear Daily, and that's what you should do. And I said, can I use your phone? And I sat at her desk, and I made the phone. I booked the suite, and I did. And so then a friend of mine took a picture of me wearing the dress, 
and sitting on a, on, a, on a white cube. And when I got the picture, the picture was very nice, but the white cube was taking a lot of space, and it was just big white space. So I can, I, I don't know, I took a pen without thinking. I wrote on the cube, feel like a woman, wear a dress, and I signed my name. And that became the phrase. And it also seems like it has become, in some ways, something that has sort of like guided your career because there's always this element of being a woman and not trying to hide femininity, hide sexuality. Well, I had good legs. <laughs> I was young. I couldn't afford a model, so I was my own model. And and I was and then I, I met a very good salesman and the salesman he, he was he was a really good salesman he sent me all around the country, and for me you know a little European person it was very fun I mean I found everything ex exotic Oklahoma or Palm Springs <laughs> you know I mean it all sounded so exotic and so I would go with my little bag and I would around and and. And people would see me arriving in, in oh, uh, pe <laughs> people would see me arriving and they say, who is this girl, you know, and a European princess with an accent, with little dresses that would sell for $86 at the time. And, uh, and so as I was doing that, I was getting more confidence. You know, I was feeling more and more confident because women would come and they would buy the dresses and I would go in fitting rooms and fit them. And then I was, and as I was getting confidence, I was selling my confidence and everybody was feeling more confident. And, and, and by then I'm already, you know, I'm separating from my husband and I'm, you know, so this was this whole, movement of, of this, this, we are now in the 70s, and so my, the dress that became so successful became a symbol of the movement of being free but still being sexy and blah, blah, blah. And also, I mean, during that time, I mean, more women than ever were going out into the workforce. There was Roe v. Wade was during that period. Hillary Clinton graduated from law school in and 1973. <laughs> I mean, it was really. Everybody had a. It really captured a moment of that, that when when women's lives were changing. Yeah, and and everybody. The the listen. It's it's the, the, that dress is a mystery. Is a mystery because it was a huge, huge, huge success, and then of course it was so big, and everybody had so many of them, that it got saturated for a while, and this, and then and then fashion changed, and it was the eighties, and blah blah blah, and. Uh, and then the dress came out again in, in the late, in 99, yeah. when I started to realize that young girls were buying the old dresses in vintage shops. And that's when it I couldn't believe. And then I started again. And then there was a whole other wave again. But the thing over the years, what is so incredible is that it's a dress that people remember. I don't know, Tina Brown met her husband in the wrap dress, and Arthur Way was conceived in a wrap dress. <laughs> I mean, you know, they have their stories. Um, I mean, the other day I, I went to my, my grandchildren's school, and, and one of the mothers came to me and she said, you know, I have to tell you, 
um, you know, I, 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 I was a makeup artist and I was making very much money and then I bought that dress and then this and that. And um, anyway, she told me that her son, who is in my grandson's school, was conceived in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> what they open? <laughs> <laughs> it's for easy access. <laughs> and, and another another thing that uh, people once some, said somebody something about the dress that describes the dress. He said, "It's the it's uh, m oh when you wear the dress you you get the man and his mother doesn't mind." So it means it's kind of sensual but proper at the same time. Well, one of the, during this, this period. Did you ever have a wrap dress? I, I, I did. I, nothing was conceived, but I did have a wrap dress. <laughs> um, one, during this period, I mean, it was such an incredible time for you, for the company, for the sales of the wrap dress. And one of the things that, one of your quotes during that period was you were living a man's life in a woman's body. Now that was my dream. When I first started, I always wanted to have a man's life in a woman's body. And, and I, and you, I got it. unpack that a little bit? I mean, what did, what did you mean by that? Well, it means that I could do the same thing that guys do. Whatever, you take it to however you want. <laughs> <laughs> you could say pay the bills or whatever. And <laughs> I'm just thinking about all, all that that means. I mean, do you, as you, as you moved forward, and there was a period when the, the business was troubled, and, and you also mentioned that you left New York in the 80s because you didn't particularly care for New York in the 80s. Well, uh, you know, one of the <laughs> I can't believe it, but if you actually read my book, you, you will see that I write that one of the reasons is that I left New York is because New York had become the city of Donald Trump. I wrote it, so it's there. I, mean, <laughs> uh, I wrote it long ago. But anyway, it, what, <laughs> what I meant, what I meant really, it was also in the mid-80s was dynasty, what was the other? Dallas. Dallas. You know, it was that time, big shoulder pads, big boofy hair, and, and, and Reagan. And so money was seemed to be like the big deal. Whereas in Europe at the time, we were talking about the making of Europe. And, and there was a flag, a blue flag with all the stars. And my children by then are teenagers, and when your children are teenagers, you better put them in boarding school. And so <laughs> they went to boarding school, and I moved to Paris. And how did, that, how did that change your outlook in terms of what you wanted to do with Well, I mean, because I had sold the business. Mm -hmm. I had sold the business, and it was the 80s, and my children were away. And so I, and I fell in love uh, with an intellectual uh, writer. And so I moved to Paris and, and lived another fantasy, which was I always wanted to have a literary salon. And so I did that for a while until 
the love affair kind of after five years. Mm -hmm. And then I came back to America. <laughs> and then though, and those were a difficult time because then I realized that, that my identity was so much linked to my, my business and to my brand and I had lost that. And by then my children are in college and they, are, they all have these wonderful ideas and I just thought, oh my God, I lost it all. So it was for a while, it was really difficult. I had, I had lost my um, way of expression and I don't know if it's related, but I got um, cancer in my tongue. So maybe it's because I couldn't express myself, I don't know. And, uh, and then my, my door, you know, I always say to young people, I love to talk to young people, to say when, at the beginning of your life, you don't know what door to push, right? There are all these doors in front of you and which door is gonna be your door. My first door was really a factory in Italy, not the most glamorous door, but it turned out to be the door that made, made me. Uh, so I am, you know, now in the 90s, early 90s, and, and I really want to go back to work, but my, my name is licensed. I don't know, it was all complicated, and, and people didn't, the name had gone really down, and so they weren't really interested. And then my new door turned out to be QVC. This little company, I walked into this company in Pennsylvania one day. I went with Marvin Traub. Mm -hmm. You remember him? He was the chairman of Bloomingdale's. It was a big deal. And we went and we arrived in a room just like this. It was uh, like a studio. And there was Susan Lucci, Lucci? From uh, All My Children, the all soap my, opera. Soap yeah. opera. She was selling shampoo. <laughs> and in about half an hour, she sold half a million dollars of shampoo. And I thought, oh my God, this is great. So, what I love about you, you are not a fashion snob. I'm not a snob. <laughs> and, and then I thought, this is great. But I wasn't thinking about clothes. I was thinking about cosmetics because I had had a mm -hmm. cosmetic company that was successful that I had sold. And, um, and then they, but they were interested in doing clothes. And I said, oh my God, this is so tacky. And how can you sell clothes without trying them? But anyway, this was the first time in, in years that anybody had offered me anything. So I said, let me think about it. And then I went to Hong Kong and it was very interesting. I went to see a silk manufacturer that I had worked with when I was very big and he was very little. He was a tiny person. And then now he had a big factory and I was nobody, but he remembered me. And so I said, listen, I want to come up with this concept of designing very simple things that you could sell on television, like shirts and pull-on pants, very easy, and scarves, and using prints and colors and things and that. So we made a little sample, um, tiny little line, and I went to QVC and I called that silk assets and they loved it and so I, I and but, but the smartest thing I ever did was instead of buying them and selling them to them I said okay I will design it I will make sure it gets made in time but you buy directly from the factory and you give me 25 percent on top of the cost or whatever. You could be on shark. And they said yeah <laughs> and and so that was a great idea. Anyway, so meanwhile, 
my ex-boyfriend, who was now my friend, Barry Diller, uh, was also without a job because he had left Fox. And he was also looking for his next career. And I told him, I said, you know, there's this company, blah, blah, blah. You see. Anyway, one thing after the next, by the time I did my first show, I drove my car and I went to QVC to do my first show. I went to the hotel room to change and Barry had sent me flowers and he said, welcome home, because he had bought the company. <laughs> and then he came also and then it was a big success. In one hour or two hours we sold a million two or something. So after having felt like such a has-been for a while, I was a pioneer again. And that gave me the confidence, and that's when I started again. And rebuilt the business. That's right. Do you, when you talk to um, uh, young, young designers, particularly um, through your role with the CFTA, and you know, so many of them you know, want to have this sort of high-end business, or they want to design for this very rarefied customer. I mean, what kind of business advice do you give them, having well, seen it, it, a business? The, first of all, the first advice I say is that right now the world is changing so much, so don't try to do it the old-fashioned way, right? Because there's so much disruption. And also, I say, focus very much in, in one thing. What is your product? What is your idea? Or whatever, one thing. And the other thing I, I also tell them, it's always good. Don't look for money, because you'll spend it before you've done anything. But the most important thing you can do is find or get close to the person who actually manufactures. Because the person who actually manufactures it is the one who has the most incentive for you to succeed. You know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those are the kind of advice that I give. And, and every season before the collections begin, you also send out a missive, a little letter, to the fashion community. Yes, and I told them to, I always tell them that health is beauty. Please do not use anorexic girls and diversity. By the way, talk, talking about diversity, I have to say that the most important thing that has happened to me this year mm. is the visit at, at the African American Museum. Yeah. Mm. It is life changing. I was really floored. What, I mean, it seems like there has definitely been changes in the way that designers approach the notion of diversity and the way they think about it. But it has seemed like it's also been a bit of a heavy lift. What do you mean? That it hasn't, hasn't come swiftly and it hasn't come without pushing. I mean, is it a tug of war, do you think, between designers wanting to have a very particular vision, between their being so focused on the creative aspects that they're not necessarily thinking about social responsibility? No, I don't know. Listen, Givenchy and Saint Laurent, they had mm -hmm. the most beautiful, you know, colored models ever, and they did it because they inspired them, because they were so hot and beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not the designers. I, I don't know. But just, I mean, this is what this country is about, and this is what we 
have to embrace, right? More than ever. Mm -hmm. Well, I, which, which brings me to the, the other question uh, of the day, because you were asked this certainly uh, by Women's Wear, and you were very diplomatic in your response. Um, but what is, what is the responsibility of the fashion industry it, when it comes to representing the country, perhaps dressing a first lady, perhaps not dressing a first lady? Well, I, 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 you know, it's funny because I, I, I wrote what I wrote. What did I write? I write, uh, no, because they were asking, you know, if you would dress the first. Right. And I said that any first lady should be, should be uh, respected like any first lady. I mean, it's, that was the thing. And I think that the role of fashion is really to go, to go about beauty and, and diversity. And so I, I, was, I tried to be diplomatic, but it's very funny because I got, I got all kinds of feedback. Some, some people congratulated me. They understood it one way. And some people got upset. They understood it the other way. It was uh, clearly wasn't that diplomatic. <laughs> Does, do you think a first lady has a responsibility to the, the American fashion industry? Yes, for sure. And what, what should that be? No, I mean, I think that if you are first lady, you're, you represent America. I'm not saying you have to wear only American. But I think that, yes, you, 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 uh, yes, of course, if you can, it's, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, of course. And one of the, over, over the course of your career, you talk uh, you've talked a lot about and you've, and you've sort of excelled in um, having career and family and all of those things. And I guess the question that's so often is posed to women is, can you have it all? And I would ask you if you feel, if you feel like you've been able to have it all. And then I would also ask, do you think men can have it all? Well, I'm not a man. I don't know. But... Um... Well, all I can tell you is that the most successful thing I've ever done I, I, today, as I look back, the most successful thing I have done is my family. I am the, the thing I'm the proudest of is the quality of people and of human being that my children and my grandchildren are. I mean, so I may have had a lot of successes and failures and this and that, but looking back, I think, I mean, really, my family is my biggest proud. So that, having said that, I really, I really think that women. <laughs> that's when I married Barry. So he was first my boyfriend, then my friend, and then my husband. <laughs> and uh, and that's when I married him in two thousand and one. On his birthday. Right. On okay. his birthday, for his fifty ninth birthday. He had waited a long time. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, can you do it all? It's very hard. I think women should, I, definitely I think women should have children. And I also think women should have an identity outside the home. Yeah. It is very difficult, but it is indispensable. So women are used to do a lot. Mm -hmm. You had a great uh, line in your memoir when you said that when a woman becomes 40, uh, when she's facing 40, she should become a myth. 
Yeah, well, at the time, I thought, <laughs> I thought that 40 was a lot. <laughs> I'm going to be 70 in three weeks. <laughs> and I've been thinking about it for one year, because I want to be ready. And so, <laughs> so I figured I should embrace it instead of having you go on Google and find out how. <laughs> so. Yes, every, every age is something else. Uh, so I thought, oh my God, 40 is so young. I don't even <laughs> think that anymore. You know? uh, um, yes, they're different. One day, <clears throat> many years ago, I wanted to do a, anyway, I divided the, the, the period of the life of a woman in three moments. Development, I guess development is until you're about 35. As I got older, it stretched. <laughs> and, then, and then between 35 and 55 is enjoyment. And then after 55, 60, whatever, is fulfillment. Hmm. Fulfillment. Because that's when your children begin to have children. And that, that. Well, that is a perfect lead into one of the questions from the audience, which was, um, what propelled you to enter philanthropy? Philanthropy. Philanthropy. Well, you know, philanthropy, when you're young, it takes a little time. And first of all, the word philanthropy. My first thing was Vital Voices. Vital Voices is an organization that was actually founded by Hillary Clinton when she was First Lady, and that empowers women all around the world. And the first time I heard about it by Milan Verveer, I really, it resonated into me. So I went on the board, I became very involved in that. And then because of my relationship and my dialogue with women, I, I became more and more involved in, in empowering women and in helping women. You know, I always think that, I, I don't know, I mean, I, that, I, I relate to women, I am a woman, I, I respect women, admire women, so that's my thing, I guess. And <clears throat> so I started the Vite, um, uh, DVF Award, again, was a, an idea of my son. He said, you should have a DVF Award, and years later, after you're born, you're no longer there. It'll be like the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and so we started the first DVF Award together with women, the Tina Brown's uh, Women's Conference, the Women mm -hmm. and the Royal, because it's a time where a lot of women get together. And we do that at the UN, and we give award to women who not only have shown their courage, the courage to fight, and the power to survive, but also the leadership to inspire. And so that's, that's a big thing. And, uh, and now, you know, as I am, you know, now is a new phase in my business. I have a new chief creative officer, Jonathan Sanders. Jonathan Sanders, who is a big talent and who is refreshing the brand and hopefully going to take the brand into the future. So as I pull a little bit from all from the creative aspect of that, 
and as I am turning this big number, um, you know, the 70s were my decade in terms of the 1970s. So I'm going to say the 70s are my decade. <laughs> uh, uh, so I am going to, I, I am going to use my voice and connect also the voice of other women, other people with voice to help the ones who have no voice. So I really want to create this network of voices and because if my brand, you know, if my big umbrella is be the woman you want to be and my brand will give women the things that they can buy to be the woman they want to be, I want to focus on giving, on making, helping them to be the women they want to be without buying anything. <laughs> So those two things will go together. So I, I'm actually taking, you know, it's my birthday on New Year's Eve and blah, blah, blah. And so I am focusing and I'm writing all these things that I want to do with voices. But meanwhile, I've been speaking to a lot of people in between. So even though I don't know really what voices is going to be, what I'm going to do, I have um, created an email called voices at dvf.com. So if you want to register, you can, and you'll get an answer, and you'll know where we're going. And do you see yourself stepping fully away from fashion anytime soon? I don't know. You know, I, I, I just want, I always said that I had a son, a daughter, and a brand, right? And my son and my daughter, um, they are really amazing and I'm so proud of them. I want to make sure that my brand is, I can also be proud of it and I put it in good hands. So however long it's going to take me to make sure that it is in good hands, I will be involved in it and hopefully, you know, less. And, but I think that what I would like to do is I would like to be able to use my experience and my knowledge and um, that to to help others and I think that especially now with what's happening in the world and everything women are kind of you know um, when I, I did work for Hillary and I made some speeches for her and I used to say I started by saying you know that if she won Every woman in the world, whether they were in Africa or in the Burka or whatever, would feel three inches taller. And it didn't happen. So we just have to make sure that, um, and so women are a little bit, um, it's a little awkward and it's a little, so I think it's, and it's not about whining and it's not about complaining and it's not about, even demonstrating necessarily in as much as it is to making sure that that every woman to some degree is in charge of herself and um, whatever. <laughs> do, do you feel like you talked, you, you spoke about women around the world and do you feel like in some ways you need to turn your focus to women right here in, in the U.S. over the next few years? No, I think, I think, I think a, wom a woman is a woman. It doesn't matter. You know, when, you, when, you, when you're in the intimacy and you talk to women, we all have the same, prob the same problems in this. And also, by the way, women are strong. 
women are very strong. And you always see it in the moment of tragedy, right? When there are tragedies, it's always the women who take over. They do. So let, let, let's make sure that we know that we have this strength without the tragedy. Well, with that, I think. Oh, oh zero. I know, we, we hit our mark. Um, I just want to thank everyone for coming and to thank Diane for such a wonderful conversation and sharing her life story with us. And also just to note that there will be clips of our conversation on Washington Post uh, Live. So please go back, go there to reminisce. <laughs> Thank All you right, so that's much. it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.